welcome to the Music to My Ears podcast, brought to you by BBC Music Magazine, the world's best-selling classical music monthly. I'm Freya Part, the magazine's digital editor and staff writer, and this week I'm hosting our very first double-hander podcast episode with the writer Octavia Bright and soprano and composer Eloise Werner. The pair work together as librettist and composer on The Other Side of the Sea, their one-woman opera in which Eloise played the lead role. In this episode, Eloise and Octavia shared their experiences of music over the last year and the role it's played in helping them come to terms with grief and sadness, as well as bringing them huge joy and, more importantly, the opportunity to dance. They spoke to me from their respective flats in London just before society opened back up after the UK lockdown, in that very peculiar limbo period where the world was still slightly in flux. Please excuse the slightly squeaky chair you might be able to hear in this recording. Yet again, the perils of recording from one's unglamorous attic bedroom were definitely realised. Because this is a podcast about listening, can you both tell me a little bit about where you are and what you can hear on a day-to-day basis? Eloise? So um, I am in South London, in Brixton, and I live in a flat which is quite badly insulated (laughs) so um, I actually can hear my neighbours quite a lot but we get on really really well so it's totally fine Um, and um, I can hear yeah my downstairs neighbours sort of watching TV sometimes and talking to their friends Uh, but that's fine and I also hear the birds quite a lot uh, because I'm also in a very green area so that is really lovely. I'm um I'm in a flat in North London and um similarly to Eloise actually not great insulation um (laughs) but my upstairs and downstairs neighbours are pretty good the one thing that's been interesting throughout lockdown is next door uh is a house and they have a teenage daughter and she decided to take up the recorder and uh also tap dancing during lockdown so (laughs) my life has had this like intermittent soundtrack of um I mean I have to say she has improved a lot and she's now graduated from recorder (laughs) to flute which is a little bit less invasive um but yeah it's been pretty wild I mean it's it that's that's the struggle um but the good thing is I look out into loads of gardens and there's a lot of wildlife which is wonderful um loads of birds as well um occasionally foxes going at it which is you know a bit of a shock in the middle of the night but (laughs) on the whole it's um it's quite a peaceful place to be which has been a godsend while we've been spending so much time inside yeah I feel like everyone suddenly picked up more on the bird song particularly I guess at the height of lockdown where everything was so quiet there's actually a book that had recently in fact actually I've got it here bird song in a time of silence oh no that sounds amazing gorgeous it's just come out he's a he's a twitcher and a bird enthusiast and it's basically all about how the seasons have changed over the last year and the the bird song that has kind of underpinned the whole the whole year great it's great but so before we get too carried away talking about music and things like that we should probably explain to the listeners how you two know each other so would you like to tell me a little bit about your process of working together Eloise you start okay so uh, a few years ago uh, composer Freya Whaley Cohen uh, wrote a, a piece of music for our my contemporary quartet, the Hermes Experiment. And this piece of music was a beautiful song cycle of uh, the so setting of words by Octavia. And so it's a set of three songs, which are actually now available on our new album, if you want to check it out. It's called <laughs> We Phoenician Sailors. And I just obviously loved it straight away. I loved the words and the music. Um, and when I was... 
thinking of um, planning a new project, uh, which is a one-woman opera. I was looking for a librettist and someone to work with for the writing side of things, because I'm not good at that at all. And I immediately thought of Octavia, because having just worked together through Freya, I really loved her work. And we met just once in a, you know, in a, in a rehearsal, and I just got a really nice vibe from you. And so I just emailed you and asked you if you'd like to be involved. And you said yes. And that's kind of how our kind of bigger collaboration uh, started and evolved. And we became good friends as well. Yeah, it was also the most perfect timing because I just just handed in my PhD thesis and was waiting to do my Viva and Eloise's email came in and I was in that weird state of like, okay, this huge thing is coming to an end. What am I going to do next? Who am I? (laughs) (laughs) And then this project landed in my lap and it was the most beautiful creative free experience to to sit. And I remember we met in a pan quotidienne restaurant in... um, down in South London, wasn't it? Um, In Waterloo maybe or something and sat at the back and just like brainstormed for a couple of hours and drank loads of tea and ate some cakes. And I just thought this is definitely the right place to be. Like this is the (laughs) next thing. This is great. (laughs) So had you written for, uh, had you set words to music before you'd worked with Freya or was that? No, I, um, I mean, no, not officially. And Freya had, Freya and I have known each other a very long time. Her older sister, Tamsin, and I went to nursery school together. So I've known her my whole life. And she got in touch with me because she wanted to write some music. Um, and she wanted to write, to, to set music, to, sorry. She wanted to set poetry to music and she wanted to um, write some songs that were looking at sexuality and desire. And she knew that I had been researching and writing about that for, for a while. Um, and she asked if I had any poetry about, about desire. And I had this little poem called Oyster, which I sent her and she loved it. And then she wrote that one piece for the Hermes experiment. And off the back of that, they commissioned us to write two more. So the first, um, the first piece was words that I had written separate from music, but the second two in the song cycle I wrote specifically for Freya to set. So that was a really exciting experience to think about how poetry shapes itself differently when you're thinking about it being sung rather than just read, or um, when you're thinking as well about a particular musician. And Freya's uh, Freya's way of composing is really intuitive, and I find it very bold and quite unusual. And so I, I had a lot of fun thinking about where she might take certain words or certain sounds. Um, and I brought that very much to working with Eloise because I knew she was a very fearless performer. And that's a gift when you're writing for somebody, when you know that you can take them somewhere really weird and they'll go even further. <laughs> so what was when you started working together on the opera? Did you both come with an idea of what it might become or obviously Eloise you said that you had the one one woman opera in mind did you have anything more in terms of like themes or style yeah I think I had the kind of basic basic idea of wanting to explore the idea of language and identity and the relationship between language and performance and language and identity um I am French and moved to the UK when I was about 18 to study here and then decided to stay here Um, and didn't really speak very good English when I moved here first and now sort of can speak English okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Also a performer and so I've been thinking a lot about those kind of 
um, ideas of what it meant for me to be living in a different country, speaking a different language, and also being a performer myself, and how that kind of translated uh, in my everyday life, and also how it translated on stage, performing words by others, and singing words by others. Um, so I kind of approached Octavia with these kind of basic ideas, but then obviously the project developed very much with her and with her her ideas as well. And then what direction did you then take it in Octavia? What was your process in kind of setting words and as your first time as a librettist? We started with um we started with the ideas and then I had some snippets of text. I mean, I'm always writing notes to myself and li- little lines of of text and thought and I had some things I'd been walking in Cornwall on the southwest coastal path and I found it a very fertile place to be and I'd written some lines and I thought that they could be a really great way in because I knew when Eloise explained to me the themes that she was interested in they actually chimed with a place that I was in my own life having finished the PhD and and thinking about my own identity as well and it felt like a wonderful way to build a bridge between the two of us Um, and I had these opening lines that were about walking on the southwest coastal path and um, feeling light and empty because of leaving something behind but actually the thing that you're carrying is yourself Um, and so I showed them to Eloise and she really liked them and we decided that we could start there Um, and then the rest of it was shaped a lot by we got funding from Snape Malting so we went and did a residency down in Aldborough and um, we decided that we wanted to bring some of that landscape and that um, seascape in, and which fit quite well with the opening of the Southwest Coastal Path. So this, we decided we needed to have an anchor in a setting so that we could get more abstract with the ideas and with the sounds. Um, so we kind of brought that, we made a mishmash, I guess, of those two coastal places. And then um, the more I spoke to Eloise and the more I listened to the way that she enjoys playing in with sound and and um abstract noise and finding emotional expression in those things um I'd had more of an idea of something with a bit more narrative structure but actually as we worked together we both found so much pleasure in just breaking it down and kind of getting somewhere quite strange and we decided we we both really wanted to take some risks with it because it felt like a um, we were supported in being experimental. And I think when when you get a gift of a project like that, you might as well lean into it and take the biggest risk you can because it's quite rare <laughs> to be allowed to do that. Um, so then we we ended up in a place that was quite different from where I'd imagined and was really, really exciting, where we could get into kind of rhythmic soundings and looking at um, what happens when you disintegrate, I guess, verbally and also in, intellectually and emotionally. And then um, at that point, things were really also influenced by some of our other collaborators. So we were working with Zoe Martlew, who helped us to get, um, really pushed us to go even further into the abstraction. Um, and we had visuals from Jessie Roger. And so we were also responding to the things that she was picking up on the camera and um, it all became really folded into itself. So it, it started with everyone coming from their individual perspective, but I'd say by the end, it was a totally collaborative project, which was one of the other things that was so wonderful about it. And Eloise, was that the first opera that you had written in that way? Yes. <laughs> I um, I had performed before um, a one-woman opera as well called Scenes from the End, um, which, again, with this, 
So I came up with the idea and the themes I wanted to explore, but I wasn't comfortable at this stage of just writing the music myself. So I actually worked with a composer, Jonathan Woolgar, who wrote the music and the text, actually. Um, and that was a very collaborative process because I was involved in the making of it. And because it's a one-woman opera as well, you know, a lot of it, a lot of the piece is what I do on stage has so much impact on the piece itself and some moments were sort of improvised, but it was very much him writing the music and coming up with a basic structure for the piece. And so from the back of that, having performed that and having that having had that experience of performing an odd solo opera on stage, I then felt that I wanted to take it further and maybe have a go myself at having more freedom with the actual... Um, music element of the show so that's when I came up with this uh, uh, idea of wanting to explore language and identity and performance and approached Octavia because I definitely didn't want to have to write well I, I cannot write words <laughs> so that was not a question um, so then thought I needed to a wonderful writer to collaborate with and so that was my second experience kind of creating a one-woman opera, but definitely the first time being in charge of the musical elements. Mm, so you came from a kind of performance perspective. What about you, Octavia? Had you, what was your relationship with opera, if at all, anything, before you came across this project? Well, it was something that my, my dad and I used to do together. He was a huge opera fan, and he um, probably once a year would get me tickets to usually the ENO, um, and he would either come with me or he would send me with my mum or, or a friend because he often felt, he would say, oh, I've seen The Marriage of Figaro enough, but, you know, I want you to know it. I want you to understand it. My favourite opera experience was when he took me to see Peter Grimes at the ENO and it was the most extraordinary performance. It was a huge cast, like really amazing sound. And I think, I think that was the first time that I started to see that opera could be something maybe less formal and more experimental than necessarily the, the classical operas that I'd grown up listening to and he always had CDs on in the car and stuff. For me, the way the ENO, um, they would always do really exciting staging and really modern costumes and things like that, which brought it into a space where I think when I was much younger, I had that that kind of... Um, slightly fearful reverence of opera that that people tend to have and as I got older I realized it was just as ripe for being messed around with you know as any other art form um which is why I think when Eloise approached me I, I was less intimidated than I might have been um you know years previous but also I think um I'm a languages student historically and I speak French not nearly as well as Eloise speaks English, but <laughs> um, and I speak Spanish, and um, I've got some Italian extended family. So there's like also the the tradition that opera has of mixing languages and cultures and stuff is something that has always been really really important to me. Um, and when we started work, we knew that we wanted to bring in that crossover of Eloise's bilingual identity. Um, 
And I have always wanted to have the chance to play a bit in languages other than English. Um, and that felt, it felt true to the opera uh, format, I suppose, in a way, even though we were really messing around with it. You mentioned that you um, you kind of interacted with opera through your dad. Let's go back. That's quite a good opportunity to kind of go back to our first interactions with music. Um, Eloise, can you tell me a bit about your musical upbringing? Did you grow up in a musical family? I did, actually. Um, my mum was a Baroque flautist and uh, my dad is, is a scientist, but he also plays the, the violin. Um, and my sister now is a filmmaker and scientist, but she also studied the violin when she was younger. And so there was a lot of uh, music in the house all the time. And I started with the cello when I was very young, when I was four. There's a cute picture of me with a tiny cello and people are like... Is this a cello? This is it. Basically, it looks like a violin, but it's actually a cello. <laughs> it's the size of the violin, and um, or maybe a viola. And yes, I there was always quite a lot of CDs playing, I suppose. And yeah, my mum, when she was well, she would practice. Um, obviously, so I'd hear um, music in the house, and also a lot of um, French songs. Uh, obviously, I grew up in, in Paris, and there's this tradition obviously, of, of wonderful singer-songwriters, uh, French singer-songwriters. Uh, so particularly uh, Barbara, who you might know of. And, um, you know, it was always sort of playing at the weekend. or And so all this kind of... Yeah, I guess there was a lot of, of that sort of stuff. So not necessarily classical music, but maybe more... I don't know how you define that genre. It's not really mm. pop, but it, it's sort of French, French song, you know, <laughs> where the words as well are really sort of amazing and heartbreaking. Um, and also, yeah, a lot of Baroque music through my mum. And also, yeah, we always listened to sort of Christmas oratorio around Christmas. And, you know, that was often playing. And because she was playing the flute, she had often parts in those kind of Bach uh, cantatas or passions. And yes, I guess uh, I was very lucky in, in that way that um, I had that. And then when I was a teenager, I, I joined the... Um, Maîtrise de Radio France, which is uh, the French radio children's choir. And so I was really lucky, and so did my sister, actually. We both joined at the same time. I was a bit older when I joined. And that was amazing. Basically, it's it's uh, one of, it's part of the French radio. So it's the, 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 the children's choir, part of the French radio. And we had school every morning, like every other children. Um, so normal schooling with all the hours kind of packed in the morning from Monday till Saturday. And then every afternoon we'd have choir, music lessons, uh, composition, um, but yeah, a lot of choir essentially. And we did some stage productions as well and performed in the most amazing concert halls in Paris and elsewhere. Uh, we went on tour and essentially it was amazing because because we were the, the, the kind of choir associated with the radio anytime you know, an orchestra needs a children's choir for a piece. Um, that would be us. So we'd do recordings with the most amazing conductors as well. Um, so that was uh, an amazing experience. And I did that basically throughout my teenage years. And that was a hugely formative time for me. Mm. And nowadays you're you're kind of one of the rare breeds that have managed to coincide being a singer and a composer, kind of to equal to equal levels. When did you first start writing, and did that interact with your singing as well? Yes. Well, I think thank. I mean, 
when I was at the Maitrise, that was the amazing thing is that we had such a broad musical education. So we'd sing every day in choir and also had, you know, individual singing lessons, um, but also composition lessons. And I, I always loved writing and I, I always took part in the composition competitions and things and won a few and then the choir would perform my pieces. And so it was already kind of, I guess when I think about it now, the composition and the singing was actually quite linked early on, thanks to the opportunities that I was given then. Um, and I also, when I was a teenager, I'd, I'd write songs um, that I would perform singing at the piano, accompanying myself at the piano, kind of a bit like Barbara style, so quite lush um, harmonies. And my sister wrote the words for me because I couldn't write words still at that time. <laughs> and, uh, and that, you know, I did that a lot and it was a very natural thing for me. And, and it kind of evolved from, you know, then obviously then I trained properly as a singer and, uh, but still kind of was writing on the side. And, and more recently I've really started composing more again and also started composing for other performers now, which is, uh, exciting but yeah I think the kind of performing and composing was already quite was always quite um linked from quite early on through singing mm. yeah yeah and do, do you remember the first piece of music or any you mentioned Barbara but is there any particular piece of classical music that you remember first coming across and falling in love with that has kind of cemented in your brain yes I think there's um well there's there's loads actually and it, it's hard to maybe pinpoint the the first one but one of the first pieces that I really remember vividly and I still listen to a lot is the violin concerto by Mendelssohn There's this moment at the in the first movement after the kind of cadenza, the violin cadenza, where the orchestra joins back in underneath the violin, kind of with the main theme, and the violin sort of plays a broken kind of arpeggios on top of the orchestra, and it's so beautiful and amazing. It's like magic. It's that moment where you think, "Wow!" When first hearing it, you know. I just got moved so much. It's that kind of thing that music can do. You can't really put it into words, but it feels so good and it's so nice to listen to and it just moves you. It's just a wonderful feeling. And it's quite a simple thing. I like the kind of way Mendelssohn did that. It's, it's, it's quite a simple way of writing it, but it just works so well. And, and that's, I remember thinking, well, wow, music is amazing. You know, you could just kind of create this kind of trigger, those kind of emotions by just simply writing this beautiful melody and kind of the violin on top with these chords. Um, and yeah, it's just, I remember, and I still listen to that movement a lot, you know, because it just still does the same effect to me than it did um, some time ago when I first heard it. And that's a piece as well that's been recorded and performed time and time again. Are there any recordings that you particularly return to or find comfort in? Yeah, so there's the recording of Menuhin playing it uh, with Ford Wangler conducting and 
there's this thing with Menuhin's sound. I don't know. You, you kind of hear it, and straight away you know it, it's him playing. You know, it's so warm, and it kind of gets straight to your. I don't know what part of your body, but it's just like <laughs> wow, and um, it's very kind of generous and direct, and it's so special. Um, so yeah, that that recording. Um, when I hear it, I know it's it's that recording mm. straight away with the orchestra comes in with, uh, yeah. Uh, and Octavia, same same question to you. Really, is there is there a piece of music that you first remember coming across, and in what context did you first discover music? My my context was also in my family. My dad um, also actually was was a scientist before he became a kind of um, head of industry, and he uh, he always played the played music the whole way through. So he was a wonderful pianist and he also played the clarinet and he decided not to pursue that as a career, um, but he always kept it going and he always wanted me to be brought up in a house full of music. He had great hopes that I would also be a talented musical person and I really, really let him down on that one. <laughs> I had piano lessons and singing lessons until I was, I guess, GCSE level when we all realised that it just wasn't my natural um, form of expression. But the thing that was a wonderful gift for that is that I've always had a real appreciation of music. Um, and the house for me when I was a kid was full of, always full of music, mainly classical and then jazz. My dad was a big jazz fan as well. And we used to play jazz piano together, um, which was a really beautiful memory. Um, but uh, I guess the the piece that stands out for me that I can have, I have a, a very vivid memory of um, listening to it as a small child. Because again, like Eloise, I find it very hard to say which was the first ever one. But this was um, from the ballet, Prokofiev's ballet um, of uh, Romeo and Juliet. And it's the the piece, the Montagues and Capulets, because it's so intensely dramatic. And I have a very clear memory of parading around my family's house, I think with a sarong tied around my uh, shoulders as though I was wearing a like queenly cape <laughs> and imagining that I was Lady Capulet. <laughs> The thing I, I think the thing I responded to as a child in classical music was storytelling. Um, and the ballets often have the most extraordinary storytelling in the music. Um, and obviously the opera is in a different way, but where you've got no libretto, just the, the way that that ballet tells the story of all the different characters through the sounds and um, the style, you know, and you know from that piece, the Montagues and Capulets, that they have beef and there's trouble and they're big characters. And um, every time I hear that piece of music, I, I, I'm taken back to, to a time of being very young and very interested in like big emotions. I mean, that hasn't changed. <laughs> Do you think that either of you have, have learnt about, I guess probably Octavia, this question more applies to you. Have you learned anything about storytelling from opera and ballet in terms of your own approach to writing? That's such a good question. I think, um, yes, I think so, you know, because the thing that you find 
in ballets and operas is, um, you know, you have refrains that come back and announce particular characters or that um, draw your attention to a particular tone in the story, whether that's this is a time when people are feeling love or this is a time when people are feeling anger. Um, and I think that's definitely something that comes into my creative writing. Um, I wish I could have done my academic writing like a ballet. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been so joyful. But I think, I do think that there is something, if you grow up surrounded by, um, yeah, by, by storytelling in music, some of it's very unsubtle, right? Like some of it's very, very top level, but there is a subtlety to it. And I think you get a real sense of the shape of a story and how, you know, a good story holds your attention partly by giving you nuggets of things that you can hold on to as it unravels and I think this idea of a, of a particular refrain that comes back however subtly is a really helpful thing if you're trying to follow something um and I think it I think I think it definitely gives you a sense that um you can you can be quite abstract in storytelling and it still be very clear to the person who's watching it I mean I think I, I wouldn't claim to have like cracked that one yet but I think it's a good goal <laughs> working progress <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so did you when you first heard um the Montague and the Montagues and Capulets did you see that in a live context or did you just hear it on a record or at home and have it explained to you I think it would have been I would have heard it on a record at home first mm. and then was you know was taken to the ballet I was very lucky to be taken to the ballet quite often as a child and I loved dance and did ballet classes and all that you know um Angelina Ballerina style stuff <laughs> but um yeah I would have at that age it would have just been playing at home um which is an interesting thought actually so yes I would have had the story told to me I think also Romeo and Juliet it's such a um, I mean, I grew up in a, in a house with lots of literature and, and people always talking about stories and, and things. So I probably had a sense of it long before I ever saw even, you know, the play, let alone the ballet. Mm. Yeah, that is, I think you're right in a lot of people, um, ballet and particularly ballet, actually, people come to those stories of Romeo and Juliet or Swan Lake or anything like that through ballet and then end up kind of realising the other way around that, they exist as stories. I remember I came across Swan Lake through Barbie Swan Lake. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So I wanted to ask you both a little bit about live performance because it's such a big part of the musical world that has obviously been slightly halted in the last year. Um, Eloise, in normal times, do you experience, obviously you experience live music on the stage all the time, but how much live music are you able to see in person? A lot. I always try and if I have a free evening and I'm not too tired and there's something going on that I want to see I tend to go and try and see it if I'm able to so I, I was always sort of out and about either watching a concert or a play as well I, I loved I love uh, going to the theatre as much as live music actually um, and that's something that I've really missed and I you know whenever there's been in the last year any opportunities to go and see something live because there have been there were a few windows where there were you know a concert you know I I've been to that one <laughs> um, and yeah it's it's um I mean I found that a it just gives me so much joy to just watch live performance but also for my work I know I learned so much from watching others and it's such a big part of how you kind of create is just learning from other life performances that are going on and also it's kind of 
showing your support and often you know you, you kind of know the people involved or you want to be there and support them and I found that it's been quite difficult to yeah all of this just not happened and just the idea of um yeah I mean just waiting for it to come back really and mm. uh I, I mean hopefully it will I mean it, it's looking like it will come back slowly and obviously things might be social distance for a while and that kind of thing but mm. the yeah I definitely normally go and see a lot of live performances and that's something that I've definitely hugely mm. missed in this last year. How has your listening changed with the restrictions on live performance have you because I know a lot of instrumentalists and artists for the first months or so kind of retreated away from music it was a bit too hard to engage with it how did you find in terms of your listening and your rehearsals as well I guess yes I think it sort of evolved because obviously at the beginning when it was the very first lockdown and everything was shut um I sort of went into this weird rabbit hole of doing corona solfege so that uh, which for those listeners who might not know what it is because why would you it's uh, a weird thing that I sort of invented and created and sort of sort of did mini compositions using my face and my voice and my teeth and my eyes. So I sort of weirdly went into that quite early on in the first lockdown and did that solidly for quite a few weeks, you know, so I wasn't really engaging, but there was not much to engage with in the outside world. And I, I guess at that time I didn't really listen to a lot of music, I guess, Um but I still, you know, listened to a lot of Nina Simone, I remember at the time, and when I would go for walks in the park, you know, I often have my headphones on and listen to perhaps not necessarily classical music, but I remember, yeah, having a big Nina Simone phase quite early on, and um, I don't know, it felt like I really, it felt right at the time to listen to those kind of songs and those kind of really powerful words. And, um, and then I guess as time went on, Corona Selfish sort of became a bit more spread out and I wasn't just crazy and doing that all day. And uh, I guess, yeah, maybe started listening to other music more and, of course, then more and more online things were happening as well and more live stream concerts. So I've been kind of watching those more and more and engaging more with things that were sort of going on more as the sort of lockdown eased and things like that but mm. but I, I I think I wasn't like you know completely like no I don't want to hear about music anymore I think it's just because I sort of did this corona selfish thing I went into a rabbit hole which kind of kept me quite busy and so I, I you know I was doing that and then once I'd spent all day just working out these rhythms I maybe didn't really want to listen to more music <laughs> but it wasn't necessarily a kind of conscious thing of like I can't listen to music at the moment. So it was just sort of how it happened at the time. What was it about artists like, you mentioned Nina Simone there, what was it about artists like her that 
because she's actually weirdly quite a common name that keeps cropping up with who people are listening to in lockdown. Um, why did she appeal to you at that time? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously as, as artists, you always kind of think, you know, what, what am I doing in this world and what is it that I want to say and bring and what sort of legacy do I want to leave? You know, what is it that, why do I do what I do and what do I want to say and what do I want people to to feel and what do I want to transmit? And obviously Ines Simone is like a huge... Um, inspiration because obviously she was so she was an activist and like all her music was kind of her art was had a definite kind of aim and she you know in her songs she says kind of you will hear these words you know she 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 left this huge legacy and obviously changed the world with her music and her songs and her performances and so I mean that's hugely inspiring and in a time like now when of course especially yeah it's really tough time for so many for all of us and for some people more than others and and you think what can I do now with my art that might help people in this time and perhaps leave something behind as well and so I mean I guess with the corona shellfish thing it's kind of I had this idea of you know I want to cheer people up and to create something uplifting in this really tricky time that we are going through and perhaps doing this will somehow like you know lift people's spirits for one minute a day if they scroll past it on their feeds that kind of was the idea and you know you kind of think and Nina Simone I mean yeah her her, the legacy she left behind is absolutely enormous and so inspiring and it's so her words and it's so direct and it's you know she just at the time she just did it um in an I mean we can't really imagine this time now because things have changed so much but you know she went out there and sang these songs uh, to the people and uh, for the people and so I guess that definitely resonated with me on a obviously much like a different scale I'm not saying I'm Nina Simone at all but she was definitely like somewhere up there that I thought wow you did this at, at, at this time and you kind of think well is there something that I also can contribute to in a very very small way to yeah, kind of that's so beautifully put that's yeah I think that really captures exactly why everyone's turned to her in times of slight hopelessness and everyone's very frazzled what about you Octavia what have you been turning to and retreating to musically over the last year it's changed quite a lot there's it's been a bit of an evolution I think mm-hmm. at first I um I wasn't really listening to music at all I think I just shut down um a bit and found it I'm a very emotional listener of music and I find it, you know, like a lot of people, very, very penetrating. And so there are times when I'm almost too raw to risk it um, because it can take me somewhere very um, intense, you know, and there's a certain kind of the way that music and memory relate to one another and and things. It's one of the great joys of music that it can be so transporting, but sometimes I find that quite unnerving. Um, And so I think at the beginning I was just in a state of kind of, high anxiety and um, numbing. I wanted to numb myself. So I was, you know, listening to a lot of um, radio and podcasts and just filling my head with the voices of other people, which was a nice way to do it. Um, And then once I adjusted, I started to be able to seek joy again. And really, I just listened to funk and soul. Um, And like like Shuggy Otis and um, (laughs) Sly and the Family Stone. Like I just, I wanted joy. I wanted to dance, uh, which I did a lot of at home in my sitting room. (laughs) All my neighbours on the opposite side of the street probably could see. And that was just how it was. (laughs) I think you have to, right? And you realise that you're just not like, 
you know, when life is more normal, I go dancing as often as I possibly can. And like, it's a really important part of my relationship to music is is moving my body to music and um, like giving myself over to that experience of it. And I think the majority of the live music I see is music that I can dance to. Um, and I've found the loss of that really massive in my life. Um, and it, you know, you can get there on your own, but it's not the same as being surrounded by other bodies also moving in time to the beat. And, you know, the, the, the physicality, I've always been fascinated by the physicality of musicians and their relationship to music, which is obviously so channeled deeply through their body. And when you have that experience of live music where you're watching the musicians as these incredible physical vessels for the sound and you're able to respond with your own physicality and it's this alchemic amazing kind of communal um coming together and that so that I've missed desperately um and um Recently, I've started listening to a lot of Megan the Stallion, which is great. She's a powerhouse. <laughs> but then the other thing, which you know, I I've I had to do. I very sadly lost my father to COVID, and um, had to put together music for his funeral, and that was a really, um, really extraordinary privilege, actually, because music was such a big part of his life, and um, it was this incredibly special way of connecting with him. Um, and it meant that I had to go back into uh, a lot of the classical music I used to listen to when I was younger and, and stuff that I find very moving and maybe was a bit wary of touching. And actually, of course, the lesson was um, it's always wonderful. Mm. And um, so I've been listening to a lot um, Mozart's clarinet concerto in A major, um, K. 622. I never know how you say the title of that because <laughs> it sounds so unromantic, right? With all those it letters really and is. numbers. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's this deeply optimistic piece of music and, um, very gentle and loving, I find. Um, and so that since then, which is, um, in January now, um, I've been, I've been listening to that a lot and feeling, again, a very different relationship. Like I, my, my relationship to classical music when I'm listening is not physical at all. It's very cerebral, actually. Um, and I've been letting it take me, you know, backwards in time. And 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 with the spring happening at the same time, it's been a kind of wonderful double movement, you know, like thinking optimistically about what's on the, on the horizon for all of us and more freedom coming and more kind of liberation. And then also letting this music take me back in, into myself and into my memories. And it's, yeah, it's a real gift. say that to you guys but it's like it's <laughs> yeah I think it's easy to forget quite how magical the arts are in their different ways and what they're capable of bringing to your life mm. I totally agree and I also thought when 
when I sent over the questions in advance to you about your specific musical choices, weirdly, both of your your choices seem to follow along fairly similar lines. Like, you know, the music that um, you can't, your best live performance, you both pick like super, super vibrant, very, like you say, like full bodied performances. And then what you're listening to at the moment followed across more traditional classical lines. Like, tell me a bit about that. Heloise, what are you listening to at the moment? What is occupying your mind in that way? Mm, I think similarly, as, uh, as Octavia said, you know, the, the way that music can really trigger memories is really amazing and how you associate certain pieces of music with a specific time in your life or a specific person or, you know, a specific place. And I think in a time like this where we sort of don't quite know what's going on and although things look maybe now more optimistic, but it's it feels quite, even sometimes if it is quite painful to do, but it's quite... Um, a special feeling to kind of go back in certain places in the past and, and kind of relive older memories of things that you used to be able to do, you can't do now, or people you haven't seen in a long time or people you haven't seen because they're passed away. And um, I think music has this amazing ability to transport you like this. And, and of course, with if you live on your own, well, I do live on my own, and so you, or if, you know, even like uh, if you're in the lockdown, you don't see many people, you don't hear that much sound, but hearing kind of music, like sound in your ear, straight in your ear kind of provides that kind of bridge and kind of gets you to, even if it's in your head, like a place or a person. Um, I guess for me, I mean, I always go back to Bach um, all the time um, and so many different uh for so many different reasons. I guess one reason is that I have a very special connection to Bach because uh, my mum uh, was a, a Baroque flautist and she played a lot of Bach when I was young and she passed away now um, 10 years ago. But uh, I, I found that, especially in this time, and I don't know if it's kind of because things are quite emotional, but you kind of, it's a kind of time of reflection and, and you sort of have maybe more time to also just pause and just kind of think about what's happened until now and where I got to and um and so listening to a lot of Bach uh kind of makes me very calm but also just kind of opens my mind to these like quite vivid memories and images um and so I mean especially I guess also at the moment because Easter's coming up uh everyone's kind of talking about Bach and people are kind of uh recording Matthew Passions and John Passions and things like that and when things were normal before the pandemic hit, I used to kind of take part in those things a little bit as well. So it's 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 quite a nice time now to kind of just just listen to the Matthew Passion or the John Passion and and um, get into that sort of amazing sound world. And I associate it so vividly with those sort of memories. the solo violin um, Bach partitas and solo cellos as well um, there's something very I don't know very magical and very open about it so I guess I've, I've played that a lot on my phone um, and also similarly as we mentioned before I also tend to dance in my flat quite a lot 
And for that, I listened to sort of 80s sort of hit. Uh, so I just literally go on Spotify and um, find a, you know, there's a, there's lots of playlists called 80s hits or whatever. And I just put that on and just, and I just dance to that. Or even when I go to the park, you know, I put my headphones on and I just listen to any old uh, sort of uplifting 80s hit. I guess like Octavia said, like with the Mozart concerto, there's kind of really amazingly beautiful pieces that have quite clear associations with the past and also kind of putting on sort of groovy beats and just going along with that and you feel like it gives you some sort of energy to sort of move forward somehow. Tell me a little bit more about these um the the best live performances you ever you've ever seen because you both sent what sound like absolutely unreal performances and made me incredibly nostalgic for <laughs> going out to New Orleans Octavia can you tell me about that <laughs> yeah oh my gosh it's one of my favorite best musical memories I was there um it was when I was doing my PhD I was in New Orleans for a week to give a paper at a conference and it was one of these like the big highs of my academic career I couldn't believe that this was being made possible and um I didn't know anyone there but someone put me in touch with a friend who was living there. She was working for a charity called Reprieve that tries to help people who are on death row. She'd been there for a year. And so I got in touch with her and said, look, I'm in town, you know, if you'd like to show me the ropes or whatever. And she said, well, listen, there's this massive New Orleans tradition happening at the weekend called the Second Line. Um, you probably don't know what it is. I'm not going to tell you anything more. Just come and meet me on the corner of this street and this street at this time and um, and we'll have a great time. And I was like, cool. I, by that point, had completed all of my academic responsibilities and I was ready to kind of enjoy the city. And um, it was extraordinary. So the second line is an, an old New Orleans tradition that has a really, really rich and complex history that I kind of won't go into because it's very long, but essentially... It's to do with the jazz funerals that um, are a big part of the culture there. And the family and um, kind of chief mourners would be the first line and they would walk behind the coffin. And then the second line would be the community and always would involve um, a jazz band uh, or a brass band of some kind. But now uh, there is a weekly second line in um, particular neighbourhoods in New Orleans. So not necessarily related to a funeral. It's just a street party. And there will be these incredible bands and everyone in the neighbourhood comes out and tailgates and has beers off the back of their cars and every, all the grannies come out on their porches. And um, these amazing, like... Uh, incredible dudes on uh, bareback riding horses come and people bring out their muscle cars and it's just like for this like you know little English girl it was absolutely <laughs> extraordinary and the band were Rebirth who you know you may have heard of because they um, they kind of shot to international recognition um, when uh there was that uh, TV series Treme made in the wake of Hurricane Katrina that was all about this district in New Orleans called Treme and Rebirth did the theme su- theme song and they they were all in it. Um, and they are the most extraordinary musicians. These guys, it's a brass band, all the different brass instruments, you know, the, from the massive sousaphones to everything else. And they are, they wear these incredible outfits and the, the songs they play, it's just this explosion of joy and um, you know, historical tradition. It's so generous and so incredibly welcoming. And you experience this communal ritualistic thing and you walk the second line. So it's you're all in motion. You walk through the neighborhood for several hours and the music is just continuous, continuous, continuous. And you dance and you talk to everybody. And it's a, it's a very unique experience that couldn't be replicated in a concert hall or a gig venue. You know, it's all about being on the streets and being outside. I grew up in West London and I grew up sort of participating in Notting Hill Carnival as a, as a child. And so it felt 
at once quite familiar to me, that kind of street party of a particular sort, and then also totally new and um, enlightening and exciting. Um, but yeah, I listen to Rebirth quite a lot because it takes me right back to that moment. And I can remember the sounds and the smells, like the smells of everyone's kind of barbecue and cooking and um, the taste of beer and like everything. It's a really sensory experience. Um and then, yeah, that's one of the ones that really, really stands out, I guess, because it couldn't have been any different from exactly how it was, you know, those, those moments in time. Whenever I experience something like that, I'm reminded of how kind of buttoned up and serious daily life can be in this country. And yeah. what a shame that is. <laughs> we need more carnival, carnival atmosphere. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Eloise, tell me about yours, because speaking of carnivals, yours was in Rio, which is obviously the home of carnivals. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, yes, I was about, I think, 16 or 17, and I was uh, spending, really lucky to spend 10 days in Rio. Uh, and I was there with uh, my dad, because he was working there, and my, my sister. And uh, so he had quite a lot of colleagues and friends and some of his students as well there, kind of knowing the city and uh, kind of recommending nice things to do in the evenings. And so one night we were recommended to go into this this bar and I walked in and it was just this, you know, it was a just fairly standard small bar in Rio. And there was this incredible band playing um, with this just stunning singer called Teresa Cristina. And I was just completely blown away. And I guess I'd never seen anything quite like it and still haven't since then, actually. Um, it was just, you know, when you just see an, an amazing performance on every level, uh, the musicianship is just so amazing. So all the musicians are so tight rhythmically. They obviously don't have any sheet music or anything. It's all, you know, coming out of their brains and bodies and just the kind of rhythmic tightness of it and the sort of virtuosity. And she has a beautiful kind of, again, very emotional voice. And even though I didn't understand what she was, you know, singing about, because obviously it was in, in my language, but I just, I could get all these like emotions and kind of stories, kind of, I could get sort of what she was sort of singing about just through her incredible performance and um and yeah I I was just completely blown away and it's it's it was quite nice because a few years ago I did um so obviously at the time you know I was I didn't you know I was quite shy maybe and you know or you know if it was now I would have just gone up to them after and be like oh you know great like kind of be in touch but obviously at the time you know I I, I just didn't think that was something you could sort of do I guess and um I so I you know I didn't take their numbers or didn't stay in touch at all um but then recently I was asked to do uh, take part in this uh podcast for Jess Gillum's podcast this classical life on, on radio three and you have to pick some of some of your favorite music and uh, I pick one of uh her tracks so so it's her and her her band and um and then basically I let her know through just following her on Twitter and like sending her I sent her a DM on Twitter being like hello this is quite weird and stalky but I saw you you know when I was 16 in this bar in Rio and you know I'd, I'd kind of never thought she she's quite you know quite a big time now actually well probably already at the time but obviously you just I didn't realize but you know she's quite huge there and uh and she followed me back and replied to me and I oh, was so lovely you know thank you so much um I'll tune in and uh, you know 
please, when you next come to Rio, like, let's meet up and do something, you know. And so I was just like, this is kind of amazing, kind of, you know, Twitter has this, you know, can be terrible in so many ways, but these kind of through the internet and obviously someone on the other side of the world that I hadn't, you know, I never spoke to before, but I'd seen live and, and now I chose her track for this this show and hopefully if I can ever go to Rio, you know, fingers crossed in, a, in the future, if, you know, I, I definitely want to meet her and like have a chat with her and, and perhaps even like, I don't know, do a collaboration of some sort and that would be really amazing because yeah it really just stayed with me that performance and uh and so actually in the lockdown I have still also I regularly listen to her music because it is incredibly it's a very warm feeling and it's very groovy again it's just so uplifting and and but at the same time very kind of soulful and moving at the same time it's it's yeah it's really incredible so I really really recommend uh listening to her and her band. Both of you told me a bit about what you've been listening to over the last year. Um, just to kind of bring it up to the current day, how does listening fit into your lives? Obviously, Octavia, I imagine a lot of your working life revolves around reading and writing. Do you listen to music while you do that? No, I have to be very silent, actually. Um, there's it, it depends a little bit. Writing, no, I'm best off in silence or um, in somewhere with lots of ambient noise, like a cafe and then music is fine. But I find, I think just because I have such an emotional and penetrating relationship with music, I I don't do well ignoring it. If it's on, I'm listening. And if I'm listening, I'm not necessarily thinking, you know. Um, but what I will do is if I... Um, I'm writing something where I want to get into a particular mood in order to write it, parts of my practice will be listening to music first in order to create that environment for myself. Or, um, you know, if I'm at the moment, I'm writing some stuff that's kind of memoir, I guess. And um, I'm trying to create a particular uh, sense in the writing and the, the music won't make its way in. P- partly also because it's actually impossible to have like lyrics and songs mentioned in books because the, uh, it costs so much money to, for the copyright. Um, but I'll have a particular image. So at the moment I've got um, this amazing painting by Georgia O'Keeffe of a skull against a blue sky. And then I'll have a particular piece of music and I'll spend some time with the, the image and the song first and then I'll go into the writing. So it's very much a part of the practice, but it's not happening at the same time. Um, and if I'm reading for work, um, I need silence really to be able to take it all in because if I'm preparing for an interview, I want to have it all right at the front of my mind. But I think that's one of the reasons I miss cafes so much because I miss having that option for that kind of ambient sound. And and sometimes when I'm in, when I'm in a cafe and they're playing really, really excellent music, um, but it's at, a, it's at enough of a distance. There's a barrier with all the chatter that means it doesn't overwhelm me, but it can be a, a gift, you know? It can mm-hmm. be like a wonderful moment of inspiration that comes if you suddenly hear a song that you forgot about or, you know, new music as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's. I, I wish I wish I was someone who could do both at once, but I'm just not. <laughs> mm. I read something so beautiful recently. I can't even remember where I read it, but it was all about the loss of cafes is a kind of third space. So it's not work, it's not home, but it's this like beautiful in-between that you, you can connect to individual sounds, but they're not totally in your periphery. Yeah, and it's out of your control. I think that's mm. the thing I'm missing so much. I'm missing things being able to have an effect on me that I didn't seek out or I didn't choose, you know. So much of that, um, the joy of life is in those incidental things. 
And before I let you both go, I have one final question. Are there any artists or composers that you've been enjoying recently that have kind of captured your imagination in some way, either from the classical canon or beyond? Octavia? I've been listening quite obsessively, actually, to Beverly Glenn Copeland, who um, a friend recommended to me a few months ago, and I'd never heard of him before. Um, And what a gift, honestly. His music is so um, varied. I mean, he's been in the game quite a long time, but he's risen to prominence at this slightly later stage in his career. Um, And his voice is like nothing I've ever heard before. It's really otherworldly and at the same time, absolutely precise in how it explores emotion. Um, it's really, really, really special. And I would re- I would recommend starting with the album Transmissions, which is a career retrospective, essentially. So you really get a sense of the scope of his talent and his influences. And he's a, a musician who's been, who's absorbed influences from all over the musical canon um, and has explored different styles at different stages of his, his performing career. Um, and so it's an album that really takes you on a bit of a journey through all of that stuff um but it's very it's very emotional I mean I, it's definitely the kind of music that I, I some people some of my friends um do put it on in the background for me I find it incredibly um demanding of my attention because it's going to take me somewhere really really exciting but but sometimes a bit challenging not that the music is challenging to listen to but just that he is he's it's so intimate I guess is the way to say it it's I find the music very very intimate and I find it's very at times reflective, at times incredibly uplifting, almost euphoric because he he goes to these great emotional heights just with his voice. Um, yeah, really, really magic. And I think um, because he had this kind of career renaissance in this last year, I think his voice is going to be one that a lot of people associate with this time of restriction and, and kind of internal reflection. Um, and I think in a way, he's the perfect musician for this moment because because he creates entire worlds, you know, in every track. Um, so it's 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 good to be listening to when you can't be elsewhere and you can just follow him on this imaginative um, trip, basically. Gorgeous, that sounds great. Are there any tracks that you'd particularly recommend of his? Oh, I don't know. That's such a... Uh, no, I think just go with the album. I think <laughs> basically because... Yeah, because they're they're quite varied. Yeah. I think they'll speak to they'll speak to you. I mean, I find they speak to me at different tracks, speak to me at different times, at different feet, when I'm in different emotional states. Um, I warn you, you will probably weep at times. And it's... There's, wouldn't be a change for a day of lockdown right exactly (laughs) and it can be that glorious catharsis and I think one of the things I find so special about him is like he holds you in in the song while while you cry or while you feel the deep feeling he doesn't abandon you you know in the music I think one uh artist I just keep thinking about and coming back to and she's also a friend of mine she's Erilyn Wallen who's just a queen it's just incredible that how prolific she is all the time and she writes amazing music and so she's both both a composer and a performer as well so I I, I really relate to that as well and and what I love about her is well firstly she's just a wonderful human being and she's so funny and she's so generous and so supportive and she's been very good to me as well um kind of supporting my work and helping me kind of develop as an artist so she's sort of mentor for me um but also 
she just writes the music she wants to write and you know she she has had big commission from the proms and she writes these big orchestral pieces but she also sits at the piano and writes songs and so she doesn't have kind of one style um which i think is so amazing i mean she she can go from i mean if you go online there's on youtube for instance you can find a lot of the songs she wrote when she was young so it's her kind of uh playing and singing uh accompanying herself and she has a beautiful voice as well and, and um the style of those songs is very different from the sort of orchestral music she writes and is very different from maybe her chamber music as well and so she's just um yeah really wide range of, of music which and I, I love everything that she writes and um She's just a very inspiring person and she lives in this lighthouse at the top of Scotland. I've been to, uh, it's the most incredible place. Uh, it looks onto the sea and the mountains. I mean, it's just completely idyllic. If I was to put both of you on the spot and to ask what the last track that you listened to on your streaming platform of choice was, oh. what, what what would it be? Um, mine is Body by Megan The Stallion. Great. <laughs> I just think she's so rad I would she's a performer I would absolutely like lie down in the street to see play live I just I think she would give the most amazing stage show I agree Uh, mine is uh, Sweet Dreams nice great track yeah (laughs) amazing that was Octavia Bright and Eloise Werner talking to me from their homes in London we hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the team at BBC Music Magazine Do let us know what you think of the podcast by rating and reviewing wherever you've been listening. If you want to find out more about BBC Music Magazine, we're available in print and various digital formats across the world. Or you can visit our website, classical-music.com, where you can read about all the latest music happenings, read thousands of reviews and a good deal more. Thanks to Acast for hosting and Brittany Colley for production. (laughs) 